This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. (laughs) Being trauma-informed means every part of me needs to be present for that class. I am mindful of my language, my demeanor, even what I'm wearing, how I smell, and how my voice sounds. This is all an important part of it. Knowing when someone needs touch, Sophia de Fossade might adjust their shoulders, or place a soft support under their elbows, or whether someone needs to be left alone for now, helps people to learn what they need to feel safe in their bodies again. And parallel to that is the understanding that she also accepts her own traumas, And that is what is great about acceptance. You don't have to have it all sorted out. You just need to know it is there and learn to hold space for your own trauma. And from that, Sophia can help her students to accept theirs. It's so very simple, but very powerful for healing. With the Yoga Nidra, particularly when working one-on-one with clients, Sophia will develop Yoga Nidra scripts that are particular to what they are needing. Valeria Telles interviews Sofia de Fossad, yoga teacher, social worker, and speaker. In teaching restorative yoga, Sofia de Fossad started to notice how exhausted we are becoming in our lives. There are a lot of social pressures to achieve, to be the best parent, to be fit and healthy, successful. Through her own journey of autoimmune disease, she found that active rest was an important part of her recovery and is now a vital part of her life. Our everyday lives do not often allow a space for rest and reflection as an everyday part of our well-being, like sleep and food. Sophia lives in a city, so she sees many people juggling responsibilities with work, parenting, caring for family members, and really just burning out in the process. Her practice aims to allow a safe place to rest and reflect. Being trauma-informed is a crucial part of her teaching, and it aims to make her classes inclusive for all, no matter what you are living with. You can turn up as you are, with all your life's troubles or stresses, and through creating a safe space, you can find some time to learn to first accept where you are, then rest into it. It can lead us back to feeling safe in our bodies again, safe to let go, and quiet enough to get in touch with our own inner wisdom, which allows the student to learn how to heal and take these tools to beyond the class and into their lives. Sophia de Fossad is a yoga teacher and social worker. She started practicing yoga as a child, and aside from teaching vinyasa flow, her passion lies with teaching trauma-informed restorative yoga and yoga nidra. She also has a master's in social work professionally and works in early intervention with children, focusing on well-being and healing from trauma. 
meetsofia at yogawest.co.nz. Here is the interview with Sophia Defosad. In your own words, who is Sophia de Farsad? Sophia de Farsad, I am a yoga teacher. I'm a mother. I'm also a social worker working in early intervention with children. And I also love walking my dogs and being out in nature. What is healing to you? And is there a destination for healing? That is such an interesting question. So healing for me, um, I believe that um, we can all come into this world and we don't always, we don't have a choice about how we come into this world, how we're born, where we live, who we grow up with. And um, we're all on all on different spectrums of how privileged or lucky we are with our lives. So inevitably throughout life, things can happen and um, we can have events that are difficult or grow up in a difficult situation, or even things can be quite fine in our lives, but something can happen that um, we don't necessarily have any control out of over. And healing for me is there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, fighting for your health and all that kind of stuff. And I more come from a perspective of accepting what we've got and working what we've got and finding that place within ourselves where we can feel comfortable, have some um, resources around us to work with healing and integrate that healing into our everyday lives. And it's a constant work. It never It's not like I heal one part of my life and then I go on and forget about it. It's about integrating it back into myself um, and understanding how far away we can get from ourselves just by our you know, living and the demands made upon us in life. So healing for me is, is about integrating back to the self and uh, finding that place of softness and compassion within ourselves to accept what has happened or accept where we're at. And maybe through that acceptance, we're able to have the resources to find some change. What drives us to become open to do the healing work? That's another question. What drives us often in my line of work? So I have two areas, the social work and yoga. And although they're quite different, there are some similarities. So um, I'll start with the yoga because that um, it requires a certain amount of agency for a person to walk into my class. Usually people turn up when they are, particularly with the restorative yoga, they are um, they're burnt out, they are tired, they've had enough, they're fractured, they're just worn out. And it could be just everyday life that's done that, or it could be some difficult events, an illness or injury, or a series of difficult events. And it's often we come to a place where we're feeling so disconnected and so unhappy. It's like I've And some people have tried everything. They've been to therapy, doctors, all sorts. And, and these things do provide some respite help, of course, and never taking away from all the wonderful modalities that our modern world can give us. But sometimes we have to also 
look into ourselves and just try something different. I believe the healing journey is on many levels. It's it's the mental, you know, maybe some talking, talk therapies. It can be physical, needing help from a doctor. It can also be physical and needing physiotherapy or something like that. But also it's a spiritual and emotional journey. And that's not always addressed in our modern Western sort of science world. And that's where the yoga can come in. The social work is a little different because um, I get referrals from um, teachers or parents or sometimes children do come in. But more often because I'm working with children, they turn up because the adults around them that care for them have concerns about their well-being. And there it's a little different um, where these children may not be choosing to come into my service. Of course, they have to consent to see me, but they've been told you need to go and see Sophia. You need something to maybe help to talk about something. It's much more about um, creating a safe place for them. They might not be able to verbalize what's going on for them, but creating that safe place for them. And that is the, the similarities I have between my yoga and that social work, that initial intervention is finding a way of making that person feel safe first with themselves and then with me. I love that, this idea of um, creating this space of trust within yes, and then yes. finding that out there too. That's what a wonderful combination. And, and just something I want to speak of that you mentioned just before, this work, I cannot do any of this work without first working on myself and feeling safe within myself. And that is an absolute key part to all my practice whether it's social work or yoga is that I am I'm aware of who I am where I'm at and what I'm bringing to it it's not about fixing what's wrong with me or, or anything like that it's about being aware of it and and working with it and that's very very important to my work I love that too, this component of acceptance and then self-awareness yes because it seems like trauma it never goes completely away right Sophia no, no. Or, or it does no 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 it doesn't go away I agree with you we learn to integrate our trauma and it happens on many many levels and you need lots of modalities to do that it's not um just one way for a long time in western medicine it was talk therapy or potentially drug therapy and they have been remarkable in helping people with trauma but it's not the final story and you're right i believe it's integrating and learning to live with our new selves and turning something that could have been quite negative into like our internal radar system so that we learn to understand things in our environment that can cause us triggers or stresses and we can learn to manage them and therefore become a bit more accepting of who we are. I think I mentioned off record about something that I read on that says trauma changed the brain and so acceptance and love and self-awareness. Do we have studies that show that, that this is actually real as well? In terms of how trauma can affect the brain? Yeah, trauma, they have studies on that already, but the acceptance or love and all the yes. opposites of trauma, <laughs> per se. Yes, there, there are a lot of studies out there, particularly um, through mindfulness studies and also um, there have been yoga studies as well. And these are peer-reviewed, there's lots of peer-reviewed studies out there to show that 
having a place where you can come into the body and in a safe place in the body, and maybe it's through movement or it's through restorative yoga or through a mindfulness meditation, can increase those feelings of self-compassion, which is really, really important because it's so easy to view ourselves if we've had trauma, whether it's one-off events or long events or growing up in systemic oppression, it's so easy to view ourselves as broken, as unfixable, as damaged. But what I'm trying to work at and what a lot of these studies have shown is that you're not. You have adapted to an extraordinary set of circumstances to survive. Mm. And sometimes those adaptations don't go away because you're still working in that survival mode. Mm, Bringing some compassion to yourself is one of the first key parts of um, at that healing process. Another question about healing that I have is the obstacles to healing and the misconceptions also about healing. Oh, there's, this is a big topic. So um, there are. So I might break this one down a little bit. So obviously there are structural obstacles in our societies, and that is access to um, counselling or access to yoga classes or even access to social workers. Um, so I'll put that one to aside because that's um, a very big topic. But some of the obstacles are um, a lot of our messages out there. So in our modern society, there's a big um, emphasis on being productive being busy, having status through your work, your achievements, maybe even the kind of house you live in, who your um, relationships with, all that kind of stuff. And these can be seen as, well, I don't want to give up those things. Um, I don't want to, um, is it an acknowledgement of failure? Am I seen as a failure in society's um, ideas if I suddenly say or decide to say, I've had enough, I need to um, focus on resting or restorative um, yoga or I need to ask for help. So that's a really, really big one. Um, and I think people do get to a point of being quite burnt out before they get to a place where they realize they just simply can't go on in the way that they're going. And some of the other obstacles have unfortunately been in the wellness industry itself. There's a big, I have I very, very much believe in the power of positive thinking. However, it cannot be in place of acknowledging how we're feeling and the trauma that we hold. You simply can't, you simply can't positive think and, and your way through this. Sometimes you do have to not necessarily acknowledge the traumatic events, but acknowledge how you're feeling and learn to accept that before we can um, move on with it. When it comes to this idea of pain, is that something that you connect to suffering or pain is somehow different? Another very interesting question. So you touched on something very important. And yes, in our brains, we are wired to um, reject or push away pain, whether it's physical, you know, you put your hand on something hot and you remove it quickly, or, you know, or, um, you know, that's um, not everyone enjoys conflict and, and, you know, want to keep away from um, difficult relationships. So, um, but pain is an, an inevitable part of our lives. We can look after our bodies as much as we can, and that is also very determined on how much privilege we have to do that. But we still don't 
know the trajectory of our physical bodies, how they're going to respond to traumatic events, how they're going to respond to injury, or even how they're going to respond to these illnesses that can just come out of nowhere for some people. And I think learning to we spend a lot of time trying to push away our pain and our doctors, surely, you know, we go to our doctors and the first thing they want to do is help us with that pain by medicating. And that is very, very important. I'm not saying taking that away, but by pushing it away, it causes a second pain. And that is the anxiety of having the pain or the difficulty of having the pain. So you have the two, two pains, one, the pain that we have it. And second, that we want to get rid of it. And I guess my space is very much working on how do we manage that feelings of wanting to get rid of it. And that's all pain, emotional, physical, mental, it's all of it. And um, I don't have a magic silver bullet for this one, more that I allow people to explore their relationship with the pains that they have through restorative yoga or yoga nidra or in my social work through um, some somatic trauma therapy or some acceptance therapy. And then we learn how are we going to live with this in our lives? It doesn't always mean it's going to be there forever. I can't predict that, but I can help with how we have this unwanted guest in our lives mm. and learn to live with it. And sometimes just that mm. alone can help ease it because we're not battling anymore. So true, because fighting pain, that becomes another kind of pain. So it's Absolutely. compounding the issue. Absolutely. So true. So true. I love your wisdom. And I have a, another question. I have so many questions, way too many. <laughs> yeah, let me ask you this one. Spirituality. Do you have any spiritual belief systems or, yeah, practices? Yoga is one, actually. Yes, of course. Yeah. And I have a long, long um, relationship with my spiritual journey. And I was very fortunate that my mother um, taught um, religious education. But when I was a little child, she read to me from many, many different religious and spiritual texts. So not only the Bible, but the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, um, Zen koans. She read me a lot of Buddhist texts and she treated them like stories because, of course, in all our um, belief systems are wisdom within those stories. So from an early age, she opened me up to this idea of, of, of our life can be seen through narratives and stories. And we, um, she taught me um, meditation. And I went on for very many years, was um, had a very devoted Buddhist meditation practice through Theravada Buddhism. I use um, a particular sutta called the Anapanasati Sutta, which really works on the breath in the body. You don't really have to know too much about the sutta, but the premise is it's exploring the breath through the whole body. So mindfulness often is just the breath, but this is more taking the breath into the whole body. And I use this as I look back in my lives as a way of emotional regulation. You know, I'd have a stressful day or a big decision to make, or I needed to be clear headed. And I would use, um, I do a, 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 a quite a, a committed and disciplined meditation practice. Now, in going forward and teaching meditation, I've realized in our busy world where we're full of these distractions, I've really had to modify that in order for my clients to be able to use it. So I've now completely changed it. I'm not saying you need to sit for 45 minutes a day 
concentrating on the breath, you can just do 90 seconds throughout the day here and there of just some mindful, not just concentrating on the breathing, but just fully taking in the environment you're in, that the house or the place that you're standing, the way the body is feeling, and that is just as powerful. And I have been very influenced by um, yogic texts. Um, I have done a lot of personal study. I have, um, I could talk a lot about this, but my, I guess my biggest dharma, my biggest uh, teacher is being out in nature. And even those times where I've been living in a big in a city, I've always been able to find a tree with some birds where I've been able to observe it different times of the day throughout the year, notice its change, notice its vibe, its feeling, have that understanding that when you're standing in nature, it has a certain stillness and energy about it that is really, really useful for us to absorb. And you can do that by just being next to a tree and smelling the air. It is mm-hmm. that simple. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you speak of these things. Yeah. How simple it is being present to what is present, right, Sophia? Basically. It sounds so simple that we dismiss yep. it, right? We we don't see it. And and there's one thing I want a little bit more to say about that just briefly, is in my going into quite serious study in um, Buddhism and certain aspects of the yogic philosophies. Coming from uh, you know a Western world, I've realised it's very easy to over intellectualise everything, and that's not hugely accessible to everyone. Not everyone has time to read these texts. Not everyone has a, a study group. Not everyone can I even understand the kind of language that's used. So I've been, as I'm getting older, I'm bringing it back to the simple. Bringing it back to simple. What is the message that's being given in these amazing texts? And a lot of it for me is that um, embodied moment of being with the breath and being with the self and and accepting where we are at right as we are. Yes, a billion times (laughs) to that truth. (laughs) Accepting this, it's already fulfillment. That's how it comes to me over and over again, that this is a miracle. If I can use words to express what this is that we call life, it's... It's an amazing experiment of wholeness, right? It is. Wholeness, feeling separated. How incredible that is. If there's one purpose, one purpose only for this experience called life, what would that be from your perspective? Oh, that's another such an interesting one. So, and it changes throughout my years, but I've had quite a lot of trauma in my own life and grew up in a family that um, experienced a lot of trauma. And one of the things that I've really come to understand in myself is in order to make sense of that, I have to first accept these things that have happened, learn to work with them, and then I can work with others. Otherwise, I can't make sense of what's happened to me. If I'm able to accept accept the things that have happened in my life. And it hasn't been extremely extraordinary. It's just the way it's unfolded. I, but being able to make sense of it and accept it in my life, it, it really does help me to connect with others in a non-judgmental way, in a compassionate way, in an open way, and allow a space for them to explore their own healing possibilities and maybe also offer a little bit of hope and that for me is really the purpose I feel of the work that I do and the way that I live yeah 
I love that too. And when you talk about acceptance, you mentioned so many times um, throughout this conversation already. That makes me think about accepting not just the unacceptable, but mm -hmm. accepting sometimes that we don't accept, <laughs> that we are not I, able to accept certain things. <laughs> I completely right. agree with you on that one. I completely agree with you on that one because if you're being told to accept everything all the time and you feel you can't, that becomes another stick to beat ourselves with. And I remember speaking to a student once who, who had this uh, very long illness and was finding it very difficult to accept um, their, you know, huge change in their lives. And being in a place where it's okay not to accept it is a form of acceptance. And from that, it can be liberating to start to uh, make some space for some healing work. Yes. Uh, another trillion times to that, <laughs> accepting <Thank you>. everything. <laughs> yeah, it's so healing, even to listen to it. It just yeah. opens the heart and the mind. Yeah. Uh, so my last warm-up question is, what do you love most about being in a human body? What do I love most about being in a human body? I think it's how... Um, adaptive we can be we're not born perfect we're not born with a, a, a manual of how to do things we haven't any choice in that but we do have this remarkable ability to be able to adapt and some of that is in through um, you know the people that we meet and the journeys along the way and I think I'm careful with the word resilience because it has been used particularly particularly in the social work world, you know, if you become resilient, therefore you can put up with the difficult things in your life, which I don't necessarily think is a, an entirely healthy way to view it. It's important, but sometimes we need to change the things in our lives around us. But it is, we are as human beings remarkably resilient. And we're also, we can't fit ourselves into little boxes. You know, we, I constantly surprise myself. The people I work with constantly surprise me. And I do love that unexpected joy and that learning capacity we have at my own adaptations in life, but also how other people adapt to their circumstances. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary, some of the lives and people that I've worked with and how um, remarkable that they have come through whatever they've been through to um, find a bit of wisdom and clarity. And, and I think that's probably one of the most incredible things about our species. You use the word adaptation right, more than resilience because it does imply that we need to become as strong as possible to take in everything and that's not yes. always realistic and true exactly ah, yes. yeah adaptation right perhaps even having the clarity and courage to make the change too that we need to make that's part of whatever we call resilience but also connected to what you talked earlier about self-awareness uh, that's a game changer isn't it to become self-aware it is and and another very interesting question you're full of great questions Valeria and <laughs> um, the um oh, self-awareness it's not something that's really taught as a part of parenting or everyday lives to be self-aware it's it's interesting it's it seemed to be forgotten it's i mean it's it's a little bit stronger through um religious practices and meditation practices but on everyday modern life it's not 
a part, we're not really taught that there's an important space in our everyday just to sit back and reflect on our day. Not necessarily, and to learn to do that, sorry, without judgment. So there's self-awareness, but you can also hear that, uh, you know, the negative voices coming in, you shouldn't have said that, or you could have done more, you didn't do good enough. And it's, it's, it's learning to tease that apart so that we can just simply be aware of what we've done, maybe look at why, why we've done what we've done or didn't do, but to also try and remove some of that self-judgment so that we can have a little bit more space to go in and, and explore it. Mm, yeah, so self-awareness, it's very much connected to this non-judgmental space yes. of being. Yes. I love that. Yeah, yeah it's so yeah. true. So true. I love your wisdom. <laughs> so Thank true. you. So trauma-informed yoga, is that what mm -hmm. you have been talking so far about or something different? Definitely trauma-informed yoga um, and also trauma-informed social work. And yeah, yeah. Talk to me for a moment about somatic trauma therapy. Is that something apart from yoga or integrated? I've definitely integrated somatic trauma therapy into my yoga and to my social work practice. Um, I was fortunate enough to do a short course in somatic trauma therapy through the um, with a, a gentleman called Dr. Albert Wong, who's based in America. And somatic trauma therapy is very, very simple. And in this course, it was really interesting, the kind of people that were on this course, there weren't lots of yoga teachers, but there were lots of psychotherapists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, um, counselors. And somatic trauma therapy um, is a practice by which we learn to place ourselves in time and space right where we are. Very, A lot of our therapy um, in the past has been very focused on what's going on in the head, and it hasn't really been very connected to what's going on in the body. And our bodies are remarkable. We don't just hold neurons in the brain. We have thousands of neurons in the heart and thousands and thousands of neurons through the gut. And our bodies are constantly always assessing our environment around us, but we seem to have learned to disconnect from what our bodies are saying. And a lot of that is to do with the way our societies are set up. You know, we, we go to work, we have lunch breaks at a certain time, we're supposed to sleep at a certain time, we've got all these other commitments, and we're often not able to sit back and, and feel, oh, I feel hungry right now, I feel really tired, or I, I'm thirsty, or I, I'm feeling nervous. You know, it's, it's just we're sort of pushed along to do whatever we need to do to get by our Our daily lives. So somatic trauma therapy puts that aside to one moment and allows you permission to just check out what's going on in your body and not just your body, but the environment that you're in, the actual physical room that you're in. It's really, really powerful. And I use what before I When I, uh, before I meet with the children that I meet with in my social work, we do this really short, simple practice where I get them to say, look around the room, name five things in the room that you can see. And then I get them to ask, what can you feel on your body? Can you feel your feet on the floor or the cushion behind your back? And then take two or three deep breaths and then we begin. And it, it takes seconds, but it's about allowing ourselves 
to just calm the mind for a moment. Our mind's like a little puppy. You have to sort of, you know, it runs off all over the place. And sometimes just coming back to the very simple, where are we at right now? And what can we feel in our body can just bring you back to the present moments and bring your attention and awareness back to yourself. And then you can proceed with whatever it is that you have come to talk about or in, in restorative yoga or yoga practice, um, what you're bringing to the mat that day. I love that practice. Um, we mentioned earlier, being present to what is present. And it's not really challenging to do, but it's challenging to maintain it, to maintain this, right? Being present yes. to what is present all the time. Is that yes. possible, Sophia? Do you believe that it is possible? Well, I haven't actually, or maybe I have, I haven't met any enlightened beings who who who, who um, claim to be fully present throughout the entire day and even I, did, I saw a talk once with the Dalai Lama and even he said you know I'm not present all the time it's work it's a discipline to come back to it and what I found um, so I, I, um, I also teach uh, mindfulness meditation as a part of my yoga practice but what I found with people was um, Some people were very put off first by the commitment of a meditation practice because this idea that we need to do, you know, half an hour a day sitting in silence. There's this kind of hierarchy of, of how good you are as a meditator, you know. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and also having people that maybe came to my class that have um, are living with panic attacks or anxiety disorders, sometimes that concerted effort of focusing in the on the breath for a period of time can actually induce quite a lot of anxiety so i started to not for everyone but there and there are studies out there that some people on mindfulness courses has actually increased their levels of anxiety i'm not saying that you shouldn't try it or if you've got it give it up definitely not saying that if it works for you go for it and that's that self awareness right you find what works and, and go for it but for some people it doesn't work so going back to that idea of being present instead I ask people take that 90 seconds throughout the day to stop while you're washing your hands stop thinking about what's going on just go oh I can feel the water on my hands my feet are on the ground the basin feels cold when I touch it take a breath look around the room dry your hands go on with the day get in your car feel the steering wheel just for 30 seconds before you go anywhere and it, it, it's about incorporating it in our most benign normal ordinary moments in our lives and that is how the body and the mind learn to become more present you find you end up doing it by accident you'll be um stopping you know in the shops waiting in queue and suddenly you're really engaged with the soles of the feet on the floor and you're feeling very tall and strong in that moment you're standing it comes out of nowhere so it's kind of like training that puppy brain into um, coming back to the present and it does start with a little bit of discipline but it doesn't have to be a big deal it can just be as simple as just 90 seconds here and there or 10 breaths on the couch before you get up or five minutes before you actually fall asleep at night to feel the clothes on your body and the blankets around you that kind of thing Yeah, that's another beautiful message that it can start as a practice, but then it becomes almost like a a reminder. So we are reminding ourselves to almost automatically, right, to go back, to come back to the space of, of this moment. Exactly. 
I like this much better because practices, they can become obsessive. And I have seen that with myself. Just anything that was healthy, I was obsessed about it. And then it became another problem. <laughs> it became unhealthy. <laughs> I totally agree with you. And over, I've been practicing yoga for over 30 years. And I've definitely watched a massive shift and change in the yoga world. And um, one of the practices I teach is vinyasa. And I love vinyasa flow, but it does attract a certain type of person, including myself. I see this in myself as that perfectionist and that you know, wanting to be really fit and strong and that not necessarily, it become it, it becomes a goal and it, it, it becomes a barrier to that self-awareness. So it's about balancing that out because you can still have those um, really fiery and energetic movement practices, but it's just a little bit about changing the shift and focus. Mm, yeah. Wow. Great point about becoming a goal. That's not really yeah. the goal to get it somewhere is <laughs> no. to be here now. Right. Yeah. Another question I have for you, I just wanted to just came up a few minutes ago that came to me it's about trauma it can be felt in the body we know that it, mm -hmm. it can very much be felt in the body i still have some we can say triggers it might be i call it triggers it might be but i'm not sure or i'm just sensitive the body is very sensitive to everything around me and around certain people my body doesn't respond well it's like the gut, and mm. then I have headaches. And and I was wondering if this is coming from trauma or this is something else. I actually even went to see an energy healer because of it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, talk to me for a moment about that, Sophia. How do we learn to recognize the cause for those reactions or responses? That is an interesting question again. Um, yes, I first and foremost just want to acknowledge it is so true and that we we are on some level very primal beings. We're creatures of the earth. You know, you can walk into a room, you're feeling fine, and suddenly you're on edge. No idea why. So I've been very um, influenced by the work of Stephen Porges, who works with polyvagal theory and this idea of the vagus nerve. It runs all the way through the body, um, from the brain all the way down the spine, and it's constantly taking information from all our organs as well as taking information from outside of ourselves. And sometimes and, and the our optimal state is when we're feeling um, very social, not necessarily social as in we want to go out and party, but just being able to socially connect with people and just that feeling of being at ease. We can have triggers in ourselves that can cause us to want to fight or flight. So that fight feeling is like, I, I, you know, you're feeling aggro and, and just, you know, a bit on edge and a bit jumpy and might come out with something you didn't want to say or that flight, like I want to get out of here. Or even more so that freeze, which is a very difficult situation like dissociation where you feel like shutting down now most certainly traumas can cause this and in western trauma therapy or western psychology definitely we focus very much on the traumatic event our trauma therapy developed it was freud definitely noticed trauma you know 100 over 100 years ago in the patients he saw but it really didn't become sort of a, a very strong narrative until we got into that idea of shell shock and 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 
people coming back from war with these terrible um, nightmares and night terrors and uh, emotionally all over the place. Um, and we we've we still view quite a lot trauma in a lens of uh, pathology. Something has happened to us. We didn't adapt to it or couldn't adapt to it, and it's produced a trigger. I um, have also. I'm very fortunate to live in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's um, a country that um, I'm very close to. Um, a, a lot of the my friends are Maori, which is the indigenous population. And looking at how indigenous people across the world manage trauma, it's very, very different. They're also taking into consideration the ancestral line. If we are to look at ourselves as spiritual beings. We and not everyone shares this view, and it's it's difficult. And again, it's not in our current Western narrative to think about of our ancestral lines. But we all, I personally believe, we're not just carrying trauma from stuff that has happened. And not everyone is carrying a trauma that's triggering them every day, but some of us are. But we can also carry it from generations back. And if you think about this, you existed in your grandmother's womb because when she was gestating your mother in her womb, your mother was also creating the the, the body, the fetus is, is born with all its eggs, all its um, eggs in the ovaries. So you think about influences that happened to our grandmothers we on some, a teeny tiny part of that was an egg that became us when we were born of our mothers. I mean, this was a game changer in my mind in understanding that intergenerational link. So teasing apart whether we are just very sensitive or whether we've had a trauma is quite difficult and it goes back to that self-awareness. But the one thing that is amazing about viewing things through a trauma lens is that it applies to everyone, whether you've had a trauma or not. If you're looking at people as that we are these not just cerebral beings, but these um, primal animal beings that will also react to environments, um, we can start to understand that a trauma doesn't have to be a specific major one-off event. It could just be a reminder of something, you know, and, 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 and it doesn't, Sometimes not even that deep or, 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 or problematic, but one of the things that consolidate a trauma response is the emotional aspect of the event that happened. And it can be really minor, but our triggers can happen everywhere. One of those things about that somatic trauma therapy is when you're learning to um, look around the room and see those benign objects around us sometimes benign objects for people are a trauma but if you're learning through trauma therapy that you're seeing I don't know for example you might have um, witnessed a nasty argument where um, someone smashed a cup on the floor and it was a big shock you know and then you don't realize it but seeing a cup can just and a kitchen floor can bring it back but when you do that trauma therapy and you learn that you can be in a, a kitchen seeing a cup and the floor, but right that moment you're in a safe place, you can start to unlearn some of those patterns or triggers that we have. I mean, that's a very simple um, example, of course, there are um, traumatic events. You know, I don't want to talk too much about that because I don't want to trigger listeners, you know, but there is, you know, it can be as benign as something like that that can trigger us, but learning that somatic trauma therapy, finding that place where we're safe right now can help us unlearn some of those reactions. Uh, yeah, to identify them. Yeah. And I'm wondering what to do in the case of repeated 
responses. The body's constantly responding in a very tight, compressed, and uh, the, the headaches, and it doesn't feel right. So mm. is that something that you suggest, like in my case, to remove myself those people family members so I can't really remove myself from their lives no but, <laughs> right no <laughs> not a good advice to give here no, it's not, uh, yeah, just cut I mean, everyone out of your life that bothers you yeah it doesn't work does it? we don't uh, yes do we don't want to do that because uh, yeah. you know we, we 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 still love these people that can be mm. in our lives that might yeah. cause us difficulties and yeah. um, that's um that is that's an interesting one um I believe because um, in my social work, I get this a lot. So I'm often working with children who are in all families as well. I work with, you know, not just the children, but their families too. And they can be in very difficult environments. And how do you learn to manage those environments? And because we can't always change it, right? We can't just go, right, that's it, cutting it all out and see you later. I'm going to live in my pretty f- house in the forest and not see anybody. <laughs> yes, isolation. It doesn't work so one of those things, sorry to bring up the word again, is that acceptance. Um, you know, one of those things is accepting, of course, that other people can't change the way they are. We can't change other people. That other people can change. We can't change other people. That's what I'm going to say. When we start to view the world through a trauma lens, and it's not pathologizing everyone to be traumatized, but when we understand that some people behaving because they've adapted in certain ways to um extraordinary situations and these things can be seen as quite benign um you know they just could have grown up with two very hard-working parents which meant mum and dad weren't around very long everything seemed all right weren't around very much everything seems all right on the surface but the children felt like they needed more and they've grown these adaptions to um cope with that maybe it's they're a bit tough or they're you know not very open with their feelings or you know once you start understanding the trauma in ourselves and you view the possibility that it could be in others too, it helps to be a little bit more compassionate with them and then ultimately compassionate with us because at that moment when we walk into that room or have that interaction with someone and it it does put us on edge or make us feel uneasy, at that moment in time we are the ones that need to love ourselves and and just be, actually maybe not love, that's a tricky one, be kind to ourselves like we would if so that we can't change this other person but we can just protect ourselves a little bit more and aside from that incorporating a few more um, practices in our lives that are around resting actively resting or active um, self-awareness practices can help to just um, become your own friend and when we've grown up maybe not feeling very good about ourselves or we might have had messages that haven't made us feel loved. When I'm working with people, I get them to start off imagining their best friend and it could be even their pet, their dog or cat or rabbit or whatever. It doesn't matter. Someone you feel completely at home and comfortable with and it's and you imagine that you're with your best friend, what would you say to them if they came to you and said, I've just had a really tough day, I had to spend all day with so-and-so, or I had a difficult conversation, and they didn't even say very much, but I've left feeling really jaded. You just want to hug your friend or hold their hand and say, oh, 
I feel for you. Can I make you a cup of tea? We can just sit here and talk. It's okay, you know? And it's about learning to turn that back into ourselves. Mm. Oh, what a beautiful suggestion. Yes, I I agree, Sophia. So because we are the ones who are self-aware of these things, then it's easier to be compassionate, as you call it. I love the idea of being kind to oneself because that just automatically is expressed outward. I notice that. And there's one one last thing I want to say on self-awareness because it, it is some of us are born naturally very self-aware and it sounds like um, you're one of these people born very with a natural ability to be self-aware. It's something that of course we all develop but some people I mean I look at my own children and some of them are just very very self-aware and others quite blind to oh, what yeah. <laughs> And it's, and it's the same with any kind of skill. You know, I have friends that can run marathons. I have friends that are amazing at, at calculus and higher mathematics. These are things I can't do. They have these certain skill sets, self-awareness, empathy, being good at maths, being a, a great cook. They're all skills some of us are born with. And some of the people around us are simply, one, not necessarily born with a great level of self-awareness and also didn't have the environment where that could be encouraged and nurtured. And I think having that compassion for other people around us in that way can be very useful because then we're not always wondering, why do you do that? Why do you say that? We can encourage them to be more self-aware, but of course it's whether they have that ability to understand that language or that safe place to understand how to do that in the first place. So we're almost at the end. I would talk to you for, I mean, for the rest of my life (laughs) here in this body. I have those ending questions for you. But before yeah. that, Sophia, would you like to add anything else that we didn't discuss? I um, We've discussed a lot. I mean, same. I would love to, um, as they say in, in Te Reo Māori, korero, which is talk with you more. Um, but um, I think we've covered a lot. I mean, there's so many areas I could go from here, but I think maybe we'll go with your ending questions. Otherwise, we'll never get off this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I agree. <laughs> Happily agree. So let's see. I have too many those ending questions too. I'll choose a few of them. Let me ask you this one. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life as of today? Oh, my goodness, that I'm not perfect. <laughs> yeah, uh, we all can relate to that. <laughs> I, I, think, I think just knowing that I, I, you know, I, the first one was acknowledging that I hadn't made some great choices in my life. And then the second one was acknowledging at that point in my life, I made the best decisions given the circumstances I was in, even if I felt like I could have done something else but didn't I didn't and that's what I'm left with and just that that is a huge lesson and particularly working in social work where I do come across people with an awful lot of trauma and a lot of self-blame um it's understanding at that moment in time when things are really really difficult you're making the best decisions given the resources you have within you and around you. And some of those decisions aren't that great, but it doesn't mean to say you could have done more because that was that was all you were able to do then and just being able to forgive ourselves for that. Um, it's a big, big, big job. You know, it's a big job and it takes a lot of work, but it's been the hardest lesson for me and but also 
once I learned how to do it. And you start with the little things. You forgive yourself for the silly things you may have said or whatever. And then you can move in. You graduate to the big ones. <laughs> yeah, start like a school. Sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. When you start to unpack some of the situations you ended up in and, and realizing that you're not really, we're not always in control of a lot of stuff. And we, we sort of led to believe that we have a lot of control in our lives. And it's not really that true. So once you start to understand that, you can just forgive yourself a little bit for, I don't know, ignoring your body and getting so ill or, or whatever it is, you know? Mm, so true. It kind of um, brings me back to the, the message of being kind to the experience of life, right? Being a human body and so many things could happen. And I love the topic of not having control. I actually don't believe we have any control, which is a very Same. different yeah, idea. How oh, you do? Great. It's very controversial. Ah, it is because it's, it's a, the best point of view to have. Yeah, because it feels very real that we do have control over yeah. something, right? It does yeah. feel that way. So it feels also very real that we are separated from life itself, that we are not life, that we have a life. So that feels real too, but it's not. We don't have a life. We are life, from my perspective, in the sense of uh, realization of these things. So, but it's um, something that is very tricky to communicate. Uh, perhaps for the logical mind, for the ego mind, as some call, it's really not even possible, right, to, to get through. So my last question is, what are three things you wish everyone to experience or to have before they lose the body, before they die? Oh, three things. Okay. So one is to be loved, even if it's just from your favorite dog or cat, mm -hmm. you know, because <laughs> yeah, we can't good. all, we're not always yeah. in a situation where we have these amazing people around us. So one is to be loved. The second is to feel love for yourself. Um, it's very tricky. Some, uh, I know a lot of people that I work with both in social work and yoga, it's something they struggle with. And third, This is coming from, you know, I live in a city and I'm in a Western society. And, you know, so it's really about having the time and space to have some kind of active rest or relaxation and to be no judgment for it. So if you need to go, actually, I just need to sit in my garden and do nothing for an hour Being able to do that without anyone, or at least a one part in your life where you can have some space to do that without feeling those obligations to do all that other stuff that we do. Because it's really being with the self, you are able to develop those self-awareness, the self-love, and the time and space to reflect on what's going on for you, what you can control and what you can't. Yeah, so true. I love your wisdom, Sophia. I love everything about you, I have to say. It's truly Thank beautiful. You. The way you open to life and to explore these, the, the inner world. It's just incredibly Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your products, services, and future projects? Um, so I have a very limited social media presence. Uh, most of my work is word of mouth, but I have a small profile through the studio I work at, and that's yogawest.co.nz. 
I also have an Instagram account and it's um, all one word, life and meta. And meta is spelled M-E-T-T-A. Meta is the uh, Buddhist phrase for compassionate love. So life and meta on Instagram, where I post a few things on my um, practice, my journey, my self-practice and the work I do with other people. Yeah, wonderful. I'll have your website link on the podcast profile too. Thank Thank you. you so much again, Sophia, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Valeria. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Bye for now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Sophia de Fossad and her work, please visit yogawest.co.nz. more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.